Well, I hope you uh, have a access to a copy of uh, the Bible this morning, the New Testament book of Luke. Luke chapter 18 is where we're going to be looking. This morning, this will be the last of our, our messages in this series of uh, stories with a purpose. Next Sunday morning, we're going to be gathering together around the Lord's table as we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper communion together. Encourage you to uh, be a part of that. As you're finding uh, Luke 18, let me just uh, start off with uh, a story, and maybe you can relate to it. It's it's a story of a woman who uh, do, has to do what a lot of us do when we go to a new location, we relocate, we go somewhere new. You have to start over, build all these different relationships, etc. You have to get new doctors and dentists and all these things. And she was, she was going for the very first time uh, to a brand new dentist. And she didn't know a whole lot about him, just, you know, it heard some referrals, and, and so it's Dr. So-and-so, right? So she, she goes and shows up at the office and fills out the, the initial paperwork and is waiting, and as she's looking around, she's reading some of the stuff, and she sees something that has the dentist's full name on there. And suddenly it dawns on her, she said, you know, I went to school with a guy by that exact same name. In fact, she began thinking a little bit more, and she began kind of going down memory lane, and she said, you know, could this have been the same guy that I had a crush on when I was in school? He was so tall and good-looking and dark-haired and handsome, and she was kind of thinking about all this, and then they, they showed her in the back, you know, and taken her, and she caught a, caught a glimpse of the, the, the dentist there, and, and he was this old-looking, gray-haired, what little hair he had left was gray, and uh, a little, little porky, and uh, I said, well, surely, surely this could not be the same guy that I went to school with, right? And so, did the cleaning, the dentist comes, and he checks out, and they talk a little bit, and he, she said, you know, it's just something about his voice, his mannerisms, his, I, I just got to ask, I just got to ask. So, so as the, the appointment's finishing up, she said, I, I just have to ask you something, did you attend Morgan Park High School? And he said, well, yes, yes, I did. He said, I'm a Mustang. And he kind of beamed with a little school pride there. And she said, well, what year did you graduate? And he told her the year. And, and she said, well, I, I think you were in my class. And the, the guy stepped back and he looked at her for a minute. And then this ugly, old, bald, wrinkled, fat, gray, decrepit guy looked down at her and said, what class did you teach? <laughs> Wasn't sure if everybody would follow that or not, so if the person next to you didn't get it, explain it to them real quickly there, right? Hey, the reality is we have a tendency not to see ourselves very accurately, right? We tend to see, not see ourselves very accurately, and I think that that's true in a lot of different areas of life, but it's even true in our, our relationship with God. And what I have discovered is that there are two opposite extremes, if you will, attitudes that sometimes can be found among those who claim the name of Christ, who claim to be Christians. And maybe you would recognize in yourself a tendency toward one of these extremes or the other. Some people wrestle with a relentless sense of guilt, a relentless sense of guilt. It just, they, 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 they just never quite feel forgiven. They never quite feel 
good enough. They, they, they perhaps think about something they've done in their past and, and in their head they kind of know, well, God can forgive that, but there's, there's a part of them that never feels fully in, you know, fully forgiven. And they feel like hey, maybe if I'm, even if a Christian, I, I, maybe I'm forgiven, I'll get to heaven, but it's kind of like maybe a second tier Christian or something. And we, we can live with just this relentless sense of guilt that I, I'm never going to be good enough. On the other extreme are those who live with varying degrees of self-satisfaction, or perhaps we would say self-righteousness. Uh, these tend to be folks that, that feel like you know, they, they measure up pretty good, and they would readily admit, well, I'm not perfect, but uh, they would tend to think that uh, certainly they need great God's grace, but uh, you know, they probably were in like the 90th percentile or something, right? So what they needed wasn't a whole lot along the way. Among the, the stories that Jesus told with a purpose is a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And Luke frames this story, and he kind of tells us on the front end why Jesus told this story. And I think it had to do with the way that we see ourselves, particularly in relationship to God. In Luke's gospel, chapter 18, verse 9, Luke frames the story. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then he goes to the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, how are we to understand this parable? This parable, this story with a purpose, particularly a purpose of addressing uh, those who may have felt righteous in and of themselves. Well, let's just break it down. There are two very different men, two very different men. There's the Pharisee, and the Pharisee would have been well-respected. The Pharisee would have been well-thought of. Folks would have looked at him, and they would have immediately had, had a sense of respect. We, we tend to, to read Pharisee as bad guys when we read in the New Testament. Testament, but in that day, uh, they would have looked on, the, these are the models, these are the folks that you would want to be like, uh, these are the folks that are kind of ahead of the rest of us, so these are the folks that have a great deal of respect. On the other hand, there's the tax collector. Nobody had a lot of respect for the tax collector. 
The fact is, they would have been thought of as as traitors uh, very often to their people, that they were kind of conspiring with uh, with, uh, the hated uh, Roman occupiers to collect taxes. And not only were they working with the Roman occupiers, but they also leveraged their position to take advantage of people to feather their own nest, to to, kind of extort, to use the word extortioners, uh, to extort rich for themselves. And so you have a very respected person and you have someone who would be not respected at all and perhaps even hated and certainly looked down upon. And uh, we have perhaps many taxpayers in the room. Uh, I don't know how many tax collectors uh, we have, not quite uh, held in the same disregard uh, today as they would have been in this day and age, but two radically different men. And they had two different approaches. Two different approaches as they came before God, as they approached God specifically in prayer. The Pharisee, though the one who was well-respected, well-thought-of, approached God basically on the basis of his good works. So even though he addresses God, it's really all about him. He says, God, I thank you that I, and the whole rest of his conversation with God is about I. I am not like da 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 I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. And on top of that, I do these good things. I, I fast twice a week, not required anywhere in the Old Testament Scripture. It was a part of kind of these rules and regulations they had built on. I am meticulous to tithe of all that I get. And so he's, he's lifting up my good works. I, I, I feel good about my relationship with God based upon the good works that I bring to the table. On the other hand, the tax collector stands far off. He doesn't stand in a, in a posture of prayer that everybody could see. He not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he, he beat his breast. And he's coming not on the basis of good works, but on the basis of God's mercy. God, be merciful to me. Have mercy on me. The word mercy there, it's the verb form of the the word that would be translated mercy seat in a a noun form, the mercy seat on that Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. Uh, You could perhaps literally translate that, be mercy seated toward me. He understood. He didn't bring anything to the table. He wasn't in the 90th percentile. He understood that the only thing he brought was deficit. The only thing he brought was need. His only hope was mercy. Mercy. His only hope was to be covered, uh, and the Old Testament would have been covered by the shed blood of an animal that pointed to the covering that was coming through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so he cries out uh, for mercy, to be mercy seated, to be covered. And he identifies himself, uh, some of your English translations, if you have a New American Standard Bible, will say the sinner. It's a definite article there, and a fair translation would be the sinner. It's not just I've done bad things, uh, but this is part of who I am, my identity separated from God. I am the sinner, and he understands that, that he has only one hope, and that is in the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God toward him. Two different approaches which lead to 
two different outcomes, to do different outcomes. Jesus makes it clear as he, as he says, I tell you this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Only one of them was in a right relationship with God. Only one of them was declared just and right in his relationship with God. And it was not the one that you would have expected. It was not the one who was respected. It was not the one who had all the good works on his resume. It was the one who understood his need. The one who cried out for mercy. Two different men with two different approaches and two radically different outcomes. And then there's one important principle that he gives us at the very end of this story, the last part of verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what does that mean for you and I today? Because we're not Pharisees, we're not tax collectors. What does that mean for you and I today? Well, let me frame it with kind of three significant needs that all of us have as genuine followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask you to track with me because this may stretch you a little. I'm just going to ask God to certainly be our teacher in these moments. So I want to make sure that you're, you're, you're tuned in because I want you to hear what I'm trying to say and not what I'm not trying to say. The first significant need is that we all have a need for a humble realization of our own sinfulness. That we have a need for a humble realization of our own sinfulness. What stood out as distinct in these two men, one of them recognized uh, his own sinfulness. The other didn't seem to have a great recognition of his own sinfulness. Now, now here's the challenge for you and I. It's very easy, particularly in our culture, to look at the sinfulness of other people. It's very easy to point at, well, this lifestyle, or, or these people who are doing that, or that entertainment, or, or whatever it might be, and sometimes it's very easy for us to see sinfulness in other people, particularly if we've been cultured a little bit, particularly if we've been hanging around church for a little bit. If we grew up in a home that perhaps gave us some moral guidance along the way, sometimes it becomes a little more challenging for us to recognize and realize our own sinfulness. What we need is to become increasingly aware of the refined, in quotes, or what some have called respectable sins in our lives. Now, I understand that a respectable sin is an oxymoron and is intended to be. Uh, but but the, the, the idea is that, that we, we, can, we can operate, we can operate even in the context of a church culture, a kind of a Christian subculture, if you will, and we can say, well, I, I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I, I'm not as bad as that, and totally ignore the things that God still takes issue with. Let me 
suggest a few. Ungodliness. What is ungodliness? It's living my life with little to no thought of God. To living my day-to-day life with little to no regard for who God is or what he desires or what he's doing. I can be consumed with anxiety and frustration. I can live with a discontentment about my circumstances or my finances. I can live with a lack of gratitude or thankfulness to God and even toward others. And perhaps the mother of all, I can function very religious, very moral, very respectable, rooted in pride, a pride that separates me from God and from others. I can respectably live with areas of a lack of self-control, with impatience and irritability, with anger, with judgmentalism. We sometimes can excuse in one another envy, jealousy. And then we could spend a long, long time on the whole area of sins of the tongue. Things that we communicate to and about one another that dishonor God and hurt others. And then the whole list of ways that we allow the world to shape us, to conform us into its image, the priorities we pursue, the things that we value. And it's not overt, it doesn't make a scandalous headline, and yet God says, it's not how I designed you. It dishonors our Father. And it hurts, damages other people. We need a growing awareness of the refined or respectable sins in our life. And I've shared with you before that one of the evidences of God's grace at work in my life is that he kind of peels back the layers of the, the onion of my life. And there are things that he he makes me sensitive to today that a year ago or two years ago or even a few months ago, I I wasn't bothered by, I wasn't convicted by, but, but as I'm growing and as he's seeking more and more to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ, he, he peels back another layer and he helps me to see some of those things that I, I have accepted, I have said are okay, that are, it's just kind of how we do things that, that he still calls ugly and broken and damaging and destroying along the way. I need a humble realization of my own sinfulness. But even beyond that, I need a growing recognition of the seriousness of sin, of the seriousness of sin. How serious was sin uh, that it, it was serious enough to send Jesus Christ to the cross? 
It was serious enough uh, that, that just saying it's no big deal was not sufficient. Oh, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that he who knew no sin had to become sin on our behalf. The whole, whole reality, the, the, the ugliness, the harshness of the, the wrath of God poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross should remind us, help us to recognize the seriousness of sin. Jerry Bridges, who I'll quote a couple times this morning, wrote about it this way. Above all, when we think the curse for violating God's law is too severe, it's because we don't understand God or the nature of sin. God is transcendent in his majesty and sovereign in his authority. Every sin be it ever so small in our eyes, is an assault on that authority. In effect, we're saying, I don't care what you say, I'll do as I please. Furthermore, God has commanded us to be holy as he is holy. Therefore, each sin is an insult to his character. It's as if we're telling God, I don't want to be like you. Think what a rebellious affront it would be for a child to say that to his parent. Could it be that sin in the life of a child of God is even more egregious? Because it is an affront to not only his, his majesty, not only his sovereignty and his authority, but it is an affront to his love. It is me saying, as Bridges has put so eloquently here, I don't care what you say. I'll do as I please. I trust me and my judgment and my evaluation more than I trust what you say is right or wrong or good and best. I don't want to be like you. We tend not to think of sin that way. We tend to wink, wink. Not that big a deal. But that's only because we have a very small view of God. But then we understand the holiness of God, when we understand the majesty and the, the splendor of God, we understand what an affront, even a sin that I think is no big deal, is not, seems to be somewhat accepted and even respectable, if you will, in our, in our Christian subculture, is, is an affront. R.C. Sproul calls it cosmic high treason against the love of God against the majesty and the splendor of our God. What do I need? On a daily basis, I need a growing recognition of the seriousness of sin, a humble realization of my own sinfulness as God graciously pulls back the layers and cleans out the junk. And thirdly, I need a grateful acceptance of God's grace. <laughs> if it was just the first two points, it would, be, it would be a horrible way to live, would it not? 
Uh, But that should drive me as it drove this tax collector to a realization that I need what only God can provide in Jesus Christ. He he spoke about it from the beginning in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they are, they are shouting out, they are, they are loud, they are brash, they are an affront to the purity and the holiness of God. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This picture of cleansing that he offers through his mercy and grace. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God of God. The the one who was without sin, God became flesh and dwelt among us. He came and lived the life that you and I were called to live, a life of perfect love toward the Father and toward others, a life of perfect obedience toward the Father. And then he voluntarily, for the joy set before him, went to the cross, and there on that cross, God poured out that righteous, just, fair, holy wrath all upon Jesus Christ. He made him sin so that in him we might receive mercy. In him we might become the righteousness of God. That's that's why those words of amazing grace become so powerful. Because once you understand the seriousness of sin, once you understand how sin has has permeated, it's not just some things that you do, but it, it has shaped the very core of your being. You know you need a radical transformation, and that's only available through the mercy and the grace provided perfectly in Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul wrote the Romans, blessed, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He could rejoice a few chapters later that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This this is our story. This is our story. If we are indeed in Jesus Christ, that I, I am as sinful as I can be. Uh, It it is an affront to the holiness and the majesty of God. But God did for me what I could have never done for myself. And because of his grace toward me, because of my repentance of turning from self and turning in faith and trust to him, in him I have become the righteousness of God. There is no condemnation. I stand no longer condemned, not because I earned it, but because of what Jesus Christ did has done. And that is my story every single day. One of the quotes from Jerry Bridges I keep close. It's been such a, an encouragement and such a guide for me is this one. On my worst day, I am never beyond the reach of God's grace. When I have blown it and blown it and blown it and blown it. When I feel like I'm a, <laughs> I kind of don't even know if I'm a Christian. I keep acting like this. I'm not beyond the reach of God's grace. 
on my best day. I had a great time alone with the Lord. I gave some extra money away. I, I got to share Christ. I, I helped somebody along the way. Oh, my best day. I'm never beyond the need of God's grace. Because my good deeds are always still tainted by sin. My good deeds are never enough to earn credit when it comes to the righteousness of God. What do I need? A humble realization of my own sinfulness, a growing recognition of the seriousness of sin, and a grateful acceptance of God's amazing grace. For whoever humbles himself will be exalted, (laughs) but whoever seeks to exalt themselves They will be humbled. So how is humility developed? Well, let me give you a simple, perhaps surprising answer. By seeking God's face. By seeking God's face. It's not not by just putting myself down, but by, by fixing my eyes upon God. And see, that's exactly what the Pharisee did not have. The Pharisee had a good eye on himself. He looked at himself and he saw a pretty good person, a person that brought a whole lot to the table, someone who had perhaps a lot to even offer God along the way. He had a bad eye on others. He looked at himself favorably, he looked at others, and he said, I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so, I'm glad I'm not like him, not like her, and certainly not like this tax collector over there. But what he also had was no eye on God. Oh, he used... The language, God, I thank you, but it was all about him. It was all focused on him. It wasn't about the greatness of God. He wasn't in all of who God is. He was a little bit awed by who he was. A good eye on himself, a bad eye on others, no eye on God. See, the secret to developing humility is not looking inward at ourselves. It's not about a morbid introspection. It's not about uh, that just, I just constantly just dwell on that. It's not looking certainly outward at others and playing the comparison game. Well, I'm not as good at or I'm not as bad as. But it's looking upward at the face of God. It's understanding more and more who God is. See, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves go together. Uh, The the more that I understand the the greatness of God, the more I understand my need, the more I understand who I was created to be, and yes, who I can still yet become by the grace and the power of God. And so the more I, I look to God, the more I see God correctly, the more correctly I'm going to see myself. Tim Keller puts it this way, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. And yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence 
at the same time. Now, we, we think those are contradictory, right? It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. <laughs> I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself, nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Because my eyes are fixed upon the greatness of my God. And the more that I see who God is, the more I understand who I am. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves goes hand in hand. Many of you know at least something of President Teddy Roosevelt. Very interesting historical figure like all of us, strengths and weaknesses. He had a love for the outdoors, and uh, even today we enjoy some of the fruits of his leadership with national parks and so many other things that he uh, made as important. And one of his friends uh, talked about one of the, the rituals that, that they often enjoyed in some of their conversations as, as uh, naturalists. He wrote about it this way, after an evening of talk, as he's with Teddy Roosevelt, perhaps about the fringes of knowledge or some new possibility of climbing into the minds and senses of animals, we would go out on the lawn where we took turns at, the, at an amusing little astronomical rite. We searched until we found, with or without glasses, the faint heavenly spot of light mist beyond the lower left-hand corner of the great, great square of Pegasus, when one or the other of us would then recite, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And after an interval, Roosevelt would grin at me and say, now I think we are small enough. Let's go to bed. <laughs> had they gotten smaller? No. Their perspective had changed as they looked at the greatness of the creation. And hopefully it reminds us of the greatness of the creator. It's been said that there's one of three ways that we will relate to God. One of them is irreligious. It's pretty easy to spot, right? Irreligious uh, looks like someone who's living their life with little to no regard for God, no, no regard for religion, and they may even use words like, well, I'm into spirituality or, or whatever it may be, but they, they're, they're kind of casting all that off to the side. They're, they're running their own life, and they're being very upfront about it. Another way that we can relate to God is religious. Religious. We try to be good. We try to be moral. 
We go to church. We participate in services. We do good deeds. We try not to harm people. We try to be a good neighbor or friend. Maybe we'll cry out to God, particularly in a crisis. But basically, we're seeking to relate to God like the Pharisee on the basis of our performance. We feel like we're okay because we seem to be pretty good, or at least better than most. Irreligious, religious, or we relate to him through the gospel. And the gospel recognizes I'm not all right by myself. The gospel recognizes that I don't bring 90% or 50% or even 25 or 10% to the equation. No, I bring red ink. That's what I bring. I bring deficit. I bring need. I, I am fully and totally dependent upon the grace of God that is only provided in the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the one who is coming again someday. And I, I place my faith and my trust and my dependence and my hope not on my good deeds, not on my capacity to, to, to run my own life independent of him, but I, I turn. I turn from a self-reliance. I turn from a, an affront and an independence, and I turn and I place my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. But it's not just a trust for God, take care of my debt in the past, but it's a trust for him in the present and a trust for him with my future. That I trust him enough to follow him now. I trust that he knows more about life and living than I'm ever gonna know. And I trust him enough to follow him. I trust that he's gonna secure my future. I don't know what's around the corner, he does. I know he's gonna meet me there. I trust that he is going to make provision for, has already made provision for my eternity. And so I turn and I trust in him. Oh, him said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. That there is something about looking to him that empowers gospel living. I don't look inward. I don't look outward. I don't let that be the, where I fix my focus. But I fix my focus upward upon the greatness of God and his perfect provision for me in Jesus Christ. That's the one who humbles themselves. That's the one who will be exalted. And that's our hope and prayer and desire for each of you. We don't want you to be religious. We don't want you to settle for just doing good enough. We want you to be righteous. We want you to experience the hope and the power that's only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it can begin in a moment but it continues through a lifetime and into eternity. And so that is our hope, our prayer, our desire for you. Let us not trust in ourselves, but let us cry out 
and depend upon and trust in the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ in the gospel for this day and for every day from this point forward. Let's go to him together in prayer, please. Oh, Father, thank you that you have provided for us what we could have never, ever done for ourselves. Father, thank you for the perfect provision of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that in grace you help us to see who we really are, to see our, our sin and the affront that it is to your love, to your power, to your majesty, to your holiness. And Father, that drives us to a recognition of not only our need, but your great provision. And so, Father, I ask today for a breakthrough. I pray for a breakthrough in hearts and minds all across this room right now. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not depend upon our capacity to run our life independent of you. I pray, Lord, that we would not depend upon even a, a religious activity as, as spiritual as it may sound. But, Father, that right here, right now, we would fully depend upon the gracious provision of Jesus Christ and the gospel, the good news that changes us now and for all eternity. Father, would you right now turn hearts and minds towards you. And I'm just going to invite you to be still in the presence of the Lord for just a moment more.